When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Worthy, a podcast dedicated to telling you, the audience, which of the many dozens of streaming shows that are being thrown at you each week and month are worth your time and attention. Hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo, and editor-in-chief of The Playlist, Rodrigo Perez. Rodrigo is absent today, but as they say, the shows must go on, and oh, they have. So today, we are highlighting the true crime Apple TV Plus series, Blackbird which stars Taron Egerton as Jimmy Keene, a former high school football star that is sent to prison for the maximum sentence due to his local drug dealing, and he cuts a deal with the FBI to befriend and elicit a confession from a serial killer for a reduced sentence. Uh, The apparent killer is Larry Hall, played by the amazing Paul Walter Hauser, and the show becomes this really intense and cerebral battle between the two, and it's also a great examination of the different types of masculinity, some toxic, some not so toxic, and is also just a great true crime drama that has a beginning, middle, and end. A lot of true crime leaves you with an unsatisfying ending because investigations fizzled or there's just so much unknown information, but this story is about as complete as you can get in the true crime arena. Uh, So it's a really excellent watch for those who are into true crime. Coming on the show to discuss Blackbird is the writer-showrunner Dennis Lehane, who, if you don't recognize his name, you'll certainly recognize his work. He wrote the novels Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, Live By Night, The Drop, Shutter Island, all of which went on to be beloved films in their own right. He's also worked as a TV writer on The Wire and Boardwalk Empire, so it's kind of safe to say that everything this guy touches turns to gold, and Blackbird is really no different. It's a really tight and excellent six-episode miniseries. You can stream the first two episodes now on Apple TV+, and the new episodes will drop Fridays until all six are rolled out. Not only is it worth it for true crime fans, it's one of the last performances we'll see from the late great Ray Liotta, who plays Terrence's father and is 
excellent in the series, so it's worth watching for so many reasons. Uh, Taryn's amazing. Paul Walter Hauser is amazing. Greg Kinnear is amazing. There's just so many great performances. So we'll get to that conversation. Again, I really recommend this show. But before we get to the chat with Dennis, I've got to tell you that Bingeworthy is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, the Discourse, both of which I'm a part of, also Be Real, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, and more. It can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Please like, subscribe, and drop us a rating on any of those as we do greatly appreciate it. Okay, let's lock ourselves into my conversation with the very talented and kind Dennis Lehane. I guess I'll just start off by thanking you for taking the time to, to do this with me today. I was a really, really big fan of Blackbird. I went through it all very quickly. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I loved the review that showed up in Playlist. It, it meant a lot. Yeah, it's you've got a lot of fans over here, not just me. <laughs> it's oh, good, good. It's it's uh, yeah, the person that reviewed it was a big fan. Our editor in chief is a big fan. We were talking about it the other day, so uh, an outstanding series. And like many series, this one starts with a true story and a book, uh, especially these days. There's a lot of those going around. Uh, and you were a novelist yourself for many years, so I guess I'd just like to start with what drew you over from writing novels all those years to then, you know, TV and then film and then, you know, producing and show running. What, what was the journey for you? I don't think I've ever had a particularly, I don't think I've had a writer's personality. <laughs> sure. you, know, my, you know, I think my brother, my brother who's an actor has a writer's personality and I'm, I'm a writer who has more of an actor's personality. I think I'm, I'm very social, very gregarious. Um, so all those years of just sitting in a room writing alone and, and the novels got harder for me too. I think that was very crucial. Novels mm-hmm. kept getting harder and harder for me to write. The more I knew what I was doing, the more I thought I sucked at it. And <laughs> so it would just get more and more difficult. And then when I was on the wire, it started to be, I started to really, the wire was like in many ways, my, my doctoral school, you know, so it's nice. where I got my PhD and I didn't know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I showed up there. By the end, I felt like I I, I got a grasp of this. And then I did boardwalk. And I remember when I was doing boardwalk, we would gossip around the water cooler in the morning. And I thought, this is what people talk about. This is what life is like. Oh, so I really, I think it was boardwalk when I said, you know what? I had this fantastic office with boardwalk and just fantastic. Looked out on the Brooklyn bridge, took a picture of it. I was like, this is good, man. I like this. This is cool. So then I think I came to LA in 2013 and had already, you know, put my toe in the water a little bit on TV. And then it just, the moment I got here, work just exploded. It's just exploded since I got here. I, I was only supposed to be here for a year. And now I'm here eight years. Angelinos. <laughs> so I think from that point on, I began to say, if I write a book, I need such focus on a book. I need so much tunnel vision that if I were to say, make breakfast for my kids and drive them to school, my workday is done. It's done. It's toast. I can't get back to it. I can do that with my kids. I can go shopping. I can buy breakfast. I can come back in the af- middle of the afternoon and write a script. It doesn't affect me. It's different. A script is a blueprint. A novel is a symphony. And so you're just writing a blueprint for the 200 people who are going to be realizing this vision, right? Which is a collective vision. Ultimately, you're just laying out the, you know, the breadcrumbs, a book, you're God, man. Mm -hmm. And you're the composer and you're everywhere and you have to handle every single aspect of it. You're all 200 people. And that takes a lot. That takes a lot. And it's, it's a price that as I got older and it sort of established myself and done the books I wanted to do, I was like, man, I don't really need to pay this price right now. 
you know, I got one more book coming out. I wrote it actually while I was shooting the show and I'm really proud of it, but I don't know that I'll write another. So you're just compelled to do it either way. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So fast forward to, you know, getting your hands on this book and Jimmy and Larry's story. How did it come to you and what made you go, I want to do this one instead of like maybe one of your own works or, you know, something else? Oh, it came to me through HBO uh, at Mm -hmm. the time. And then um, my friend, Carrie Antholis, who was running miniseries at that point for HBO, said, um, I really, I just, just read it. And I said, I don't want to do this, man. I don't want to do darkness. I don't want to do serial killers. I don't want to do prison. I hate prison. You know? <laughs> and he said, please just read it. So I read it. And right near the end, it all coalesced. I was like, oh, I get us. I, I think I understand. If you look at this story, there's three, there's a major female part. And then there's mm-hmm. three to four major male parts. And of them, you have every kind of worthwhile picture for me of masculinity. For me, the, 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 the aspirational one, the one that I would want to be is Miller, played by Greg Kinnear. Um, he's methodical. He's rational. He doesn't let a narrative take hold until he's followed the facts to their natural and rational end. And then you have this loving bear of a disaster <laughs> in Ray Liotta playing Big Jim. You know, he's loving, yeah. but he's screw up, and he's, you know, and he, but he'd run into a fire for his son without a look back. And then you have at the far end, the worst example of toxic masculinity is serial killer who preys on strange women, women he doesn't know. Where's Jimmy in all this? Because Jimmy's our everyman. Jimmy's us. So where is he in all this? He's our guide in. And that was a story I wanted to tell. It's not a story that's told in the book. The real, the real Jimmy didn't go on that journey. He went on the journey factually that you see in the show, but he didn't go on the emotional journey. But I wanted him to have us that story. So that's where I, I called Karen. I said, if I can make this about the male gaze, I'll do it. Interesting. So, and I know, you know, the real Jimmy, James Keene is listed as an EP. He's an executive producer yep. on this. Yep. How, you know, but you said, you know, you're kind of altering things. Yes. How involved was he in the making of the, the series and how, you know, integral was he? He was integral right up until the point I started writing. <laughs> he was great for research. He was great. For me to say, you know, what was the real Larry Hall like? What happened in here? I remember one of the moments was, it's just a writer thing. I started to see in the early versions of the scripts, everybody, including myself, was having Larry speak in a certain artificial way is the best way I can put it. He was speaking like a Bond villain, huh. you know, and, and I realized that's just natural instinct when we're trying to get into a, a, a really dark head. You, you got to go for this. Well, I do not feel that way, James. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and I was just like, and so I said, wait a second, hold on. I noticed nobody was having him swear. None of the writers, would, including myself, would have him swear. So I reached out to Jimmy and I said, did Larry swear? And he was like, oh, yeah, all the time. And that was a way in. That was like somebody who, who says fuck is human. I can get in. You know what I mean? I can get in there. So that was the first step in. And then Jimmy told me this great, t- I said, tell me something that's not in the book, one detail. And he said, when Larry would get really agitated about an idea, his eyes would bulge. And I had a friend who was like that. And this guy, if he, his eyes bulged in an argument, you'd lost him. That's when he had gone into doubling down on something that was probably false. He'd reached into his narrative, if you will. So when I got that, I added on that um, something that I directed Paul to do, which was, I said, every now and then, I just want you to completely lose your train of thought. You know, yeah. I, I want, I want synapses to just misfire because Larry is not just a product of a terrible environment. You know, he was, he, things happened to him in the womb. 
Yep. So he has a chemical issue up in his head. And I wanted that to play out as well. I mean, I don't know if it's even possible. Were, would you even be able to like reach out to Larry Hall? Was there ever an attempt or did you not even want yeah, that somebody, perspective? He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to anybody. That's Larry's game. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, Paul found like, I think four minutes of video of Larry talking. Hmm. That's how he got that register in his voice. Larry actually talks higher than Paul talks in the show. But I was like, Paul, you got to dial it down. <laughs> He's way up here. Uh, and... And then we came up with this, con- this, this. We really did had a composition to how his voice would go, it, and it's it's at its highest pitch when he's most insecure in the middle of this show. It begins in a low register when he's out and he's free, and it begins to lower again when he starts getting confidence after that. Middle of episode four when he when he runs the cleaning crew, and and then it goes back up again in the sixth episode. So we we played with that voice a lot. And outside of just, you know, the interesting true crime element of it here, I mean, like you're saying, these performances are outstanding. Like Paul yeah. and Taryn knock it out of the park. Obviously, you know, Ray and Greg and everybody involved is just yeah, fantastic. Joe Williamson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can, can you talk about, you know, how quickly or, or just getting them involved in general and then how quickly you knew those performances were going to be something amazing? Was it like on the day? No, we, we had this incredible table read. We've all, Greg still talks about it. It was the best table read he'd ever been involved in. And it was on Zoom. It was six hours long. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shit. Six hours long on Zoom. But it was, it, we felt something really electric going on there. And I had this thing. I remembered something that Ben Affleck said once. Because uh, Ben Affleck, when he shot Gone Baby Gone, you know, that's a beautifully cast movie. It's a, you know, whatever else the opinion is that uh, of that film, most people like it, but it's beautifully cast. And, and I read up, I didn't ask Ben at the time, but I came across a quote he said, where he said he learned from a, a director of one of his own films, Changing Lanes. The director said, when, if you ever direct, cast the smallest part as if it's the biggest. And I did that. So I would go through casting aud- auditions um, on Zoom uh, every single night hours and I would never stop. I made one mistake when I was exhausted and under a ton of stress in the middle of a shoot and I picked somebody too early and I and it killed me that I did it. All the casting decisions were made so that everybody would fit as a piece of this world. And we got some great like the guy just just the guy who plays his FBI interrogator I love. You know mm-hmm. like I love that guy. The guy who plays Ellenberg. Yeah. Um the guy who plays the the guy who works in the gas station in the sixth episode. He's fantastic. You know, it's just these great actors. So once we had everybody kind of lined up, it was a matter of meshing them. And they, you know, we were all, because of COVID, you're forced into a circumstance where you're, you're all kind of together in a different way. It's a siege mentality. And it's, it's great in the best possible sense of that word. Yeah. And that's what we had going for us down in New Orleans. We were just all kind of locked down there. One of the things that kind of fascinated me about the gray area of Larry is that, I mean, everybody's kind of put off by him, but they also felt pity for him. I mean, it, even the local officers who let go, yeah. let, let him go, yep. they, they almost protected him because they just assumed he's harmless. He's this teddy bear. Were there any, you know, moments uh, in the book or in, that Jimmy told you that were just too unbelievable that you didn't include stuff like that? No, I don't think so. Nothing's jumping out at me. I think the the thing that, I thought was very telling was that when I knew this material had something that I hadn't, couldn't describe yet was I was listening to it near the end. 
I was mm. listening to it on tape. I was driving and I was driving in the desert and I had to pull to the side of the road because Larry says something it shows up in this, um, in the fifth episode and he says something and he says something so fucking disturbing that I, I, I needed a minute. I pulled my car to the side of the road and I took a minute. And when Paul read that line in the table read, he broke down crying. Oof. So we knew that was the flip line. That was the line where you say, oh my God, because what we're playing with is you go in thinking Larry's a monster. Then we show you he's also a human being. Yeah. And then just when you're like, huh, maybe he's just a human being. No, he's also a monster. <laughs> and, we, and we bring that back in. We bring you all the way back to that. And um, that's where Jimmy just keep, tries to keep a straight face. And inside he's screaming, you know? Yeah. That was what I drove the whole train toward, I think, was that line. Big moment. Big moment. And obviously it's just, he doesn't even understand like it's just another thing for him to say almost yeah and yeah it, it's nuts and then, then you also have uh you know speaking of performances you also have ray liotta who obviously is is no longer with us and is outstanding in this as well yeah. and yeah. he's playing someone who isn't in good health so i was having a hard time telling was this performance was he not actually in good health on the uh, set total performance he was in great health wow. that's in that's in great health uh he was he was so he was so great we had this lucky thing happen because Ray wasn't Ray, Ray was there to work. And I love that about him. And he wasn't, he wasn't trying to make friends. He wasn't trying to hang out, go dinner, go to parties or any of that. He just was there to work. But we did have one party and he got the time wrong <laughs> and he and his fiance showed up early. And so it was just me and my wife and Ray and his fiance hanging out on the back porch of this house in New Orleans. And it was wonderful. It's where we really kind of, I think, fully connected. And he was he was just a great, great guy and a, and a consummate professional. The last conversation we had was three weeks before he died. And it was such an actor conversation. And then and near the end, he said, so am I in the next thing? And I said, of course, you're in the next thing. Said, Make it a bigger part. <laughs> yeah, he's outstanding in it. You also brought in someone else who you worked with before, uh, Mikhail Roskam, who you worked with on The Drop, I believe it was. Yep. Yes, he was the director uh, of The Drop. Yeah. So what do you, why did you bring him in specifically? And what do you think he brought to setting the tone of the project? We needed, we needed to bring in somebody who understood violence because mm -hmm. we weren't going to show much of it. You know, that was the big key. We're not going to, this is not, a, this is a show about violence being a product of a mind. I didn't want to show stabbing. I didn't want to show any death of the victims. I didn't want to show, exploit any of that. Um, but we wanted somebody who truly understood. Taryn and I were on page one about this and, there was a director originally proposed to us and we just said, no, that's where we went in, where we said, we can't, we can't, we need somebody who truly understands the psychic and emotional toll of violence. And, and Mikhail based on bullhead and the drop is a guy who understands that. And that's why he was brought in. And I think that's what we got. He set the tone, he set the table for the first three episodes. Interesting. And you said Taryn was a part of that decision-making process. Obviously he's, he's got a little bit larger role than just an actor here. Yeah. Uh, with where he is in his career at this point, what do you think he brought beyond just being Jimmy? An aesthetic. He, he, he brought the aesthetic that he and I shared the exact same aesthetic about what this was going to be. And then the other thing he brought was a complete commitment to the role and a lack of vanity, I would say, a selflessness. And everybody else saw that. And when your top of the call sheet is that way, and your number one is that way, the whole cast falls in line this was an absolute joy if there was one thing i was worried about going to new orleans it's oh my god how am i going to deal with 100 actors you know what i mean <laughs> like damn yeah. like and and taryn 
there was no ego trips. There was no, there was no vanity. There was no difficult performers. It was nothing because they were following what Taryn was. And Taryn was an, a consummate, consummate professional. Um, and even a couple of times, you know, we, we had moments with the crew getting a little loose and he had to snap them into you know, line and just say, look, man, we're all here for a reason. It's hot. This is hard. Let's go, you know, and, and, and that's what you want. So I, I cannot say enough about working with him. It was, again, this was the first time I've run a show soup to nuts. So I had plenty of fear going in. None of it was realized. Yeah. You're in this rare position where you've, you've been a novelist, you've been a TV writer, you've been a film writer, you've been a showrunner, you have all these different things on your resume. So what are your thoughts on things like that? Running a series versus working on a film. Everyone says TV is the writer's medium. So I assume you probably feel more at home here. I feel completely more at home in TV. There's another reason too, though, too, is I, when I was young, I wanted to be a short story writer. I was heavily influenced by like Raymond Carver and Chekhov. And I wanted to, I wanted to be a short story writer. And I realized something late in my mid, mid twenties. I'm not very good as a short story writer. It's not natural. Novels felt natural. I wrote a novel. I wrote the first draft, believe me, what was published was the 15th draft, but I wrote the first draft (laughs) in three weeks. And I was like, that was cool. And short stories could take me a year sometimes. Oh, wow. Film, to me, is a short story. TV is a novel. So I, whenever I write scripts, I find it just as agonizing. As, I've successfully written a few short stories, but it's been agonizing. I've yeah. successfully re- written a few film scripts, but it's been agonizing. For TV, I'm like, ah, I breathe. <laughs> well, and if, if, you know, what I saw recently, somebody said, about Blackbird, I was like, really? You're high. But somebody said, uh, it's a little slow for the first three episodes. I was like, what? <laughs> you know how much happens <laughs> in the first three episodes? But but I'm like, if that's going to be the criticism, I'm great with that. I'm fine with that. Because I want to watch shows that take their time. I, I don't need a show that starts like a bullet. I want to watch Better Call Saul. I want to watch Barry. I want to watch, I want to watch shows that take the time necessary to unfold. So that when you finally get to the climax, it has weight. Yeah. And even having said that, a lot of these short stories, as you say, these the the films that have become, you know, come from your novels, like yeah. Mystic River, oh, Gone yeah. Baby Gone, Shutter Island, yeah. The Drop, all these are huge and, and classics by uh, many standards. So the films come out. How much ownership do you feel over those? Are you able to enjoy them as entertainment or are you just sitting there picking them apart? Like, ah, oh, God, no, I don't pick them apart. I don't, okay. I can't connect to them unless mm. it's the drop. the drop. I was involved in every step. So, but the rest of them, I just kind of, I'm like, oh, this is an interesting alternative universe. Like, that's how I feel. It's an alternative universe. Sean Penn, for example, magnificent performance in Mystic River, but that's Sean Penn's Jimmy Markham. Jimmy Marcus from the book is my guy. And so I'm like, that's an interesting interpretation, but it's not, they're two different things. You know what I mean? It's like apocalypse now, heart of darkness. Like it's just two different things. So, and I enjoy that. I I can kind of enjoy them, but I can't totally judge them. And so I didn't know Mr. Grover was as good as people seem to say it is. I didn't know that live by night was as unsuccessful as people seem to say it is. I just was just like, what good to me? (laughs) <laughs> hey you know like, i just can't judge it is there a novel of yours that never got adapted that you're like why have have people slept on that one no i know why um oh. the, the one that a lot of people talk about making and they're very excited and i own it 100 percent is the given day but because it's just so massive might be a series mind, it's yeah but extremely extremely expensive mm. so 
that's the problem. I think because, you know, if you were to do that correctly, you're looking at like a scary number, like, you know, 150 and up million. So I don't think anybody's done it. I had this story that I was doing for a long time that was absolutely terrific. It had nothing to, it's based on something that actually happened. And then everybody looked at it and they were just like, budget, man, there's no way we cannot make money on this. Like, <laughs> everybody loves the story. We think it's fantastic. It's not the given day. It's another story. We think it's fantastic, but there's no way anybody can turn a profit on this story. I was like, damn. You yeah. know, sometimes it comes down to dollars and cents. So it's it's TV from here on out for you? Yeah, I think occasionally, I the, again, I have a novel coming out in April, I think, that I'm very proud of. It might be my best. And I don't say that loosely. Believe me. <laughs> I'm almost just like people say, I really love this book of yours. And I'll be like, really? But in this case, yeah, I'm very, very proud of it. It's called uh, Small Mercies. And it's set during the busing uh, crisis in 1974 in Boston. And then uh, I, I think I, I wrote a movie for Netflix, but I feel like it might be the last movie I'll write. Although I've been approached potentially to adapt uh, a book I consider unadaptable. So I'm not sure I'm going to be stupid enough to do it, but I, you never know. You know, it's like Everest. You do it because it's there. You know? Right. It's really, really dumb. But beyond that, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be TV. I, I'm, I'm locked up with Apple for several years now. I'm very happy. Nice. My home. So, yeah. Uh, and they if anybody's it. going to put up money, they got the money. Yeah. They, they don't treat their TV department that way. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, they've been, they, they were an absolute joy to work with. They were so supportive of this material. I can't say enough about them. They let me cast this show. Uh, they let me, let me do pretty much carte blanche as long as I, I, I stayed in my lane. And yeah. that the lane was the creative lane and, and I respect commerce as well, you know, and, uh, and we made it work and it's, I'm really happy. Yeah. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. They're giving me the hook. Uh, I want to oh, thank you again sorry. for taking the time. No, no worries. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you giving me the extra time and I can't Anytime. reiterate how excellent the series is for our listeners. Blackbird, the, the first two episodes will be up by the time this airs on Apple TV plus it's well worth your time. Dennis, looking forward to seeing what's next. Thank you, Mike. Thank you.